In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask, O God, for your blessing in all things. Grant us, O Lord, to be attentive, O Lord, to your word, and to apply it in our lives with diligence. Make us worthy to pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, and thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Genesis. Um, the last time we left off with uh, chapter 24, Genesis 24, um, and the whole chapter was speaking about really one main topic, which was um, Abraham sending his servant, Eliezer, to go and find a wife for his son, Isaac. Um, and he, Abraham did not want uh, Isaac to be married um, from among the people in the land of Canaan because Canaan was full of pagans um, and he wanted him to go back to his home uh, in order to find a wife. So he sent uh, Eliezer, his servant, to go and to find a wife for uh, his son Isaac. Um, and in the chapter we talked about, you know, the different things that happened and, and how Eliezer prayed and asked God to reveal to him who would be the person suitable for Isaac, and God revealed that it would be Rebecca. And so, by the end of the chapter, um, by the end of the chapter, uh, we read about how um, Isaac and Rebecca met, and they were married. Um, God willing, today we're going to look at chapters 25 and 26. Um, in the chapters today, um, there's a little bit of genealogy, um, but a big part of the focus uh, is on. Uh, is on the birth of Esau and Jacob, uh, which are the sons of Isaac, um, and that's in chapter 25. And then in chapter 26, um, we read about another incident where there is a famine, um, and then similarly to what happened with Abraham and Sarah, um, Isaac lies and says that Rebekah is his sister and not his wife, um, very similar to what's happened before with Abraham. Okay, so we'll get to that. Uh, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So we'll start in chapter 25. Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Um, the, the, this is now, remember, after Sarah had died. So Sarah had died previously, and now um, Abraham married again. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Lamumim, and the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanok, Abidah, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. And, I, and Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, and while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. So um, Abraham always treated Isaac um, in a special way because he was the son of the promise. He was the one whom God had promised him and that he would be the one to continue his line um, and to inherit uh, and to continue the covenant that God had made with Abraham. So even though uh, Abraham had many more sons now uh, through this other woman, Keturah, and yet he, 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 he recognized that Isaac was special um, and so he kind of like separated him from the rest, right? It says that um, the remaining ones, he sent them to the country of the east, uh, away from Isaac, his son, okay? This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, 
175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer Lahai Roy. Okay, so um, the, we, we read about Abraham now. He's, 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 he died, and he's 175 years old, and he was buried in the same cave that he had purchased um, from the Hittites um, for the burial of his wife, Sarah. So they, his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, they buried their father um, next to Sarah in that cave. Okay. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. Now, if you remember, um, God had promised Hagar that he would make her son Ishmael into a mighty nation. Okay. And so here uh, we're going to read about the sons of Ishmael. There was 12 princes that were born of him. Okay? And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, then Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Edar, Tima, Jeter, Nephish, and Kedima. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements, 12 princes according to their nations. Okay, so uh, just a little bit of, of genealogy there of Ishmael. Okay? These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Okay, so Ishmael dies. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as a wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. Okay, so we, we read about him marrying Rebekah in the, in the previous chapter. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So just like Sarah, um, who was barren, also Rebekah was barren. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for her to, um, to have a child. And actually, we'll find out later that it took 20 years um, from the time that they were married in order to bear children. So it took quite some time um, for them, them to... Um, to be able to have children. But the children st struggled together within her, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So here we begin to see some very important events happening. Okay, Who are these two people? that are to be born of Rebekah. This is Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau represent two different nations, okay? Um, according to the Old Testament traditions and customs, okay, the older son, the, 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 the firstborn son, is the one who inherits the, um, like the, the, 
the, the inheritance of the father. He is the one who becomes um, the head of the household after the passing of his father. Okay, so he is the one to whom God would continue the covenant, right, that God had made with Abraham and Isaac, right? So it's a very, very important position. It's a very important position. I mean, in any family, but specifically in this family, because he is the one to whom, he is the one who's going to continue the covenant that God had made, right? He is the one who was eventually going to be the patriarch of the nation of Israel, right? He is the one whom the Messiah is going to be one of his descendants, right? So this is a very important role. So now here you have two twins, right? That are going to be born of Rebecca. Okay, and, and she felt like something was wrong. I mean, obviously, at the time, there was no ultrasounds. There was, you know, there was no way for her to know what was going on in her pregnancy. But she felt like there was something going on in her womb, um, as though the children were, like, fighting with one another. And this is symbolic because um, Isaac, uh, Jacob, sorry, he is going to continue the lineage, and, and ultimately, the nation of Israel is going to come from him. But Esau... He is going to become the father of another nation, uh, which is the nation of Edom. And Edom and Israel are going to be enemies, okay? So this is like a prophecy here. We begin to see from the very beginning, from their birth, that there is like um, conflict that is happening between them while they are still in the womb, okay? When it says here in verse... Uh, uh, 22 she said it says so she went to inquire of the lord right so she went to inquire of the lord what does this mean it means that she's asked god she prayed she asked god what's happening right what's happening with this and god revealed it to her right when it, when she, it says she went to inquire it doesn't mean that like she traveled to some place to get the answer it just means that she sought the answer um, from god uh, Origen actually he speaks about this he says where did Rebecca go to inquire of the Lord is not he present everywhere doesn't he himself say do I not fill the heaven and the earth I do not think she went anywhere but rather crossed over from a kind of life to another from a kind of work to another from what is good to what is better from what is important to what is more so and from sanctification to higher sanctification so it, again, he, he's saying that she went to inquire of the Lord. She went to ask from God, what is it that's going on? And what is it that God revealed? Okay, he revealed that there's going to be these two nations that would come from her two sons. He says, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So the unique thing here about this revelation is not just that there's twins, that there's two, um, but that each one is going to be the head of a nation. But more than that, the older is going to serve the younger, right? And and this is not the typical, like I said, the, the younger should serve the older. The older is the one who becomes the head of the household. The older is the one who has given the status of like the patriarch of the family, okay? So here the idea that the older should serve the younger is kind of curious, Um God does not indicate at all to Rebecca why this is the case, but he reveals this to her, okay? So who is it is the older? Well, the older is going to be the one who is born first, the one who comes out first, okay? He is going to be the older, okay? 
Um, and yet, in this case, Jacob, who was the one born second, he is the younger one. He is the one who would become to superior to Esau because he is the one who is going to eventually receive the blessing and the birthright, right? Whereas Esau does not. And we're going to see that unfolding here um, a, a little later um, in the story, okay? Um, so this superiority, saying that the older is going to serve the younger, it's not measured by like the size of an army or the strength, but it's it's measured by receiving the blessing of God. Who is going to continue the covenant, the, the, this covenant promise that was made with Abraham and Isaac? This is going to be the definition of who is the superior, okay? And we'll see that Jacob is going to be the one who is going to carry that promise, okay? There is a symbolism here between Jacob and Esau, um, comparing them to the church and the Jews, right? The New Testament Christian church and the, and, and the Jews, okay? Why is it? Because when you, when you look at the scripture in the Old Testament, the Jews were the original people of God, right? They were the ones who received the promises. They're the ones who received the prophecies. They're the ones that built the temple. They're the ones who were the people of God in the Old Testament, right? That's kind of like saying they were the first, they were the older, they were the firstborn, okay? But at the time of the Messiah, they rejected the Messiah, okay? And so then came the Gentiles. The Gentiles, they were, quote-unquote, the younger because they came after. They were not the people of God from the beginning, okay? And so they, they only became the children of God later on, and yet they supplanted the Jews. They became the children of God, okay? So in that sense, um, Jacob represents the church, and Esau represents the Jews, okay? And we see that same kind of symbolism happening. Um, Father Caesarius of Arles, he says, the older and more ancient people are the Jews and now serve the younger people, namely the Christians, having carried for them the divine law and the world to teach the nations, okay? Um, so, so that's one very important symbol here. Also, Origen, he sees uh, Rebecca their mother kind of like as a symbol to each of us in a spiritual sense like each of us has within us a jacob and an esau right each of us has within us a good and an evil each one of us has a righteous and a wicked each one of us and and this war that's happening here between jacob and esau symbolically is like the war between the good and the bad in each of us right the spiritual warfare between good and evil right and this is a struggle and we are called to continue and fight the struggle and, and, and pray that in the end, right, the Jacob is the one that will win, right? The good is the one that will win. So we see here a lot of symbolism and a lot of foreshadowing um, in, this, in this verse. It's very important um, because this is going to set the stage for many, many events that's going to happen um, uh, after this. Okay. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew and Esau was, skillful, was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob, Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Okay. So at this point, 
Isaac was 60 years old and he was 40 years old when he married Rebecca. So it's been 20 years now since they got married before they were able to conceive. Okay. Um, the, the name Esau means like hairy or rough. Okay. So that's why they called him Esau because of his appearance when he was born. Okay. And Jacob, he took hold of Esau's heel. This is another symbol, right? It's again a prophecy showing what Jacob was going to do. Okay. It's like Jacob was chasing after Esau and he was eventually going to take the blessing from him. He was going to take the birthright from Esau. And we're going to see that happen. Okay. So again, a lot of times in the scripture, these, these, um, these scenarios happen that are a foreshadowing and a symbol of what is actually going to happen. Okay. Esau was um, also uh, called Edom. Okay. Uh, Edom is a word derived from the Arabic word for blood. So in Arabic, the word blood is dem, okay, which is red. And so here, because uh, Esau was red, okay, he was, uh, and had red hair, and he was called Edom, okay, as another name like meaning red, okay. Also, he lived as a hunter, right? And, and hunters, they shed blood, which is also red, okay? So another reason why they call him that, okay? Um, Jacob... He was called Jacob because he supplanted his brother. He, he's like trying to, to take what is his brother's, okay? And the, the name Jacob actually means deceiver, okay? And actually, we're going to see how Jacob deceives his brother in order to get from him um, the birthright. And even though Jacob received the birthright by deception and the blessing by deception, well, the blessing really by deception, the birthright was more out of manipulation, Um He's seen by the church as, again, representing this spiritual man. He is the one who later on is going to wrestle with God. He is the one who is not going to allow God to leave him until he blesses him. We'll see this in later chapters, okay? Always when you read about Jacob in the, the church fathers, the focus about Jacob is not so much that he deceived his brother, which we will see, but it's more about what he represents, he represents the continuation of the covenant. He represents the spiritual man. He represents the one that cared about the spiritual things as opposed to the earthly things, which his brother Esau did. So there's always this contrast between Jacob, the spiritual, and Esau, the earthly. Okay, and we'll see that here um, coming up. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And here is a big problem, okay? Starting even from the beginning, um, when you have parents that don't love their kids the same, they play favorites, this is a big disaster. And we're going to see how this disaster is going to continue um, toward the end of the story of what happens with um, Jacob and Esau uh, when their father is, is dying. Um, but this is something really for any parent is that we need to always treat our children equally and fairly and show love to both equally and fairly. Not to say that, well, because I like the talents and strengths um, or personality of one of the kids more, or I have, I have, I see that one of the kids maybe is more accomplished or more talented or making better decisions or whatever the case might be that I somehow line myself up with this kid and say, this is the kid. This is my favorite, right? Whereas the other one maybe doesn't make as good decisions 
um, is not as responsible, so on. And I say, well, okay, you know, he's like a second class kid. No, we have to treat our children equally the same. Our kids are different. They have different personalities, but they're all made in the image of God and we should all value them exactly the same. Now, Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary. So Esau, <coughs> you know, he's the hunter, right? It says Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. He was like lived a more sedentary kind of life. Esau was more of the active hunter, warrior type personality. He would go out and he would hunt food, okay? Uh, whereas Jacob would cook. So Jacob, he was cooking the stew and Esau had just come from the field, right? And he was exhausted and he was hungry, okay? And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom and because of the, the red, uh, the red stew. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. Okay, this seems like a very strange request. Um, it kind of indicates that Jacob and Esau did not have a very good relationship growing up. Um, this is really like Jacob saying, you know what? I have an opportunity here. I have an opportunity to get, get something instead of me just, you know, offering to my brother um, what he needs for free and giving it to him out of love. Instead, I'm going to see what I can get from him. Okay. So this is definitely Jacob is to be blamed here for that mentality and that attitude that he has, okay? But what we're going to see is that this conversation reflects that Jacob actually cares about the birthright. Jacob actually cares about the covenant. Jacob actually wants to be the one to fulfill the covenant. And he wants, he, he, it's important to him. Right, the covenant is important to him. So even though he's trying to get some, get get it by means that are not honorable, okay. But at the same time, you can see that he acknowledges that it's important. It's something important, okay. And so he's he's like finding a way to kind of weasel uh, it out of Esau. He says, "Well, Esau, you're so tired. You want to eat of my stew? Just sell me your birthright for the stew, and we'll call it even, okay." And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay. So again, the birthright is the inheritance as the elder son. Okay. So they're, from the spiritual perspective, it's inheriting the covenant. From, from the physical perspective, it's really inheriting the authority of the whole family, okay? Um, and, and like I said, Jacob cared about it. He saw that it was important. But you see here Esau's attitude is, you know what? It's not that important for me. I'm going to sell it just for stew, for a pot of stew, for one meal, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it up. I'm going to sell it, right? And so we see here how Esau represents a carnal person. He represents a person who only cares about the earthly things. He's, he's a person who only cares to satisfy his flesh, who pursues the fleshly lusts. And this is every time you read about Esau and the church fathers, this is how he is portrayed because of this decision that he made, right? So even though Jacob is not blameless and he's like extorting his brother to get what he wants from him, but again, it shows that Jacob cared about the spiritual things where Esau only cared about the fleshly things. And actually this is, kind of reminds us of the original sin that happened in the Garden of Eden, right? What was the original sin? Eve 
gave up paradise for fruit, right? She, she gave up paradise for the, the fleshly desire she had in the moment to take of that fruit, the forbidden fruit. And here we see Esau is giving up his birthright in order to uh, get a, a bowl of stew, okay? So the fleshly desires are powerful. And, and like I said earlier, the saying that Father Caesarius of Arles spoke about, that each of us is, uh, or sorry, that Origen said, that each of us kind of is a Rebecca in a spiritual sense, in the sense that we have inside of us a Jacob and an Esau that are kind of warring with each other. We see this same war that happens inside of each of us, that each of us has a desire for spiritual things. Each of us has a desire to be in a close relationship with God. Each of us has a desire to grow in knowledge of God. Each of us has a desire to pray more. Each of us has these spiritual desires, okay? Um, but in addition to the spiritual desires, we have these fleshly desires. And the fleshly desires are always in enmity with and against the spiritual, because we'll find that everything that I do that pleases the flesh is also at the same time against the spirit, right? And, and, and we see it manifested here in the story of Jacob and Esau, right? So it's like, I will sell the spiritual, I will give up the spiritual for the sake of the earthly, right? And this is exactly what, what Esau did. He gave up the spiritual for the sake of the earthly, gave up the, this unique role that he had, um, not just as the leader of this family, right? His birthright, but as the leader of the people of God, right? As the patriarch, as the head of the people of God, because it was his. He was the one who was supposed to inherit it because he was the elder, right? And he gave it up. He said for him, this isn't important. It says Esau despised his birthright. Like, like, like this was, this was something that was so low in value to him, right? That he would just sell it away like this. That's chapter 25. Chapter 26. In this chapter, we read, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, a scenario very similar to what happened with Abraham uh, and Sarah. So, so, so far we've read in Abraham's life that there were two times that he traveled to a certain place. He was afraid that they were going to kill him for the sake of his wife, Sarah, because she was so beautiful that he lied and said that she was his sister. They ended up taking Sarah, okay? And they uh, were going to give her off in marriage, okay? And then God stopped them and revealed to them that she is actually Abraham's wife. And, he, and Abraham was rebuked. Uh, and then... and and and. Uh, and then she was restored to him again. That happened twice. The first time it happened with Pharaoh in Egypt. The second time it happened with Abimelech. Okay. And here there's another Abimelech. So, so Abimelech is a title. It's not a name. Okay. So it's kind of like uh, Abimelech means the father of the king. Okay. So it's kind of like the title of this king of the Philistines. And so this happened with Abraham twice. Okay. Once with Pharaoh, once with Abimelech. And now we see here the same Ab Abimelech or, or I mean the same uh, position. This is a different man, but Abimelech uh, of this age, this era where Isaac is living, okay? The same thing is going to happen, okay? Exactly. It says, there was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. So that's the reason that Abraham ended up going down to Egypt to begin with, 
uh, it was because of a famine. So he's saying here there's another famine. Okay, the first famine was in the days of Abraham. This famine here is in the days of Isaac. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. So God is like, um, is reconfirming the covenant, okay? And he's giving him a warning, saying, do not go down to Egypt. There's actually so many times in scripture where God tells the Israelites not to go to Egypt. Like Egypt has been like, uh, you know, like a curse for, uh, for the Israelites, okay, for, for, for so long. Whenever the people are like in need of protection, instead of going to God, they would like go to Egypt and ask the Egyptians to help them. Here he's saying, do not go down to Egypt. Okay, live in the land that I will tell you, and I will give you all of the blessings of the covenant that I made with your father Abraham. Okay, and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So the blessing is um, not only for Abraham's family and you know Isaac's family and so on, but it's a blessing for the whole earth because again. It is the blessing that comes from the Messiah, the Messiah who is to be born of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and then and Jacob, like from their lineage. He is going to be the one that is going to bless the whole earth. Because Abraham blessed, uh, uh, obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, uh, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Okay, so God here, we said he is reconfirming the covenant with him isaac is facing a famine right very similar to what abraham faced and god is warning isaac not to go to egypt okay um one thing here that we can learn from this is that whenever we go through periods of famine like god is aware of it you know like god sees that isaac there's a famine like isaac is his servant isaac is his chosen one right there's a famine that's a it's a very real and practical problem that um, Isaac had to face and deal with, right? And so God gave him the solution, right? He told him what is it that he should do. And um, he's not leaving Isaac and his family to just kind of their own saying, you figure it out, you do, you know, or he's silent about the issue, you know? So oftentimes we feel like when we're going through different struggles that somehow like God is silent and that God is not responding, God is not answering. He is answering, but he will answer in his own way, in his own time for his own good pleasure and his answer will always be the best thing at the best time for us. And it's something we have to remember, right? We have to remember that God, um, number one, he doesn't respond the way a person would respond, like a human being would respond. He doesn't operate like we do. He sees things in a different perspective. He sees like the long game for everything. And he has different purposes. Our purpose is usually just, you know, I want to... Uh, I want my immediate problem to be resolved. That's usually all we care about is fix the problem that I have. Whereas God wants to do more than fix the problem. He wants to grow us. He wants to make us better than we were. He wants to increase our faith. He wants us to, to see how much he loves us. And, and so oftentimes that means that maybe the quickest and the simplest solution is not the one that God chooses because God has a different purpose than simply fixing the problem. Yes, he wants to help us, 
but he cares about our salvation, right? He wants he wants us to he, he wants he wants us to thrive in in our spiritual life. He wants us to grow in him. And so oftentimes the way the way to achieve that is different than maybe what we might expect. And both with Abraham and Isaac, they both learned lessons um, through these experiences of the famine and going down to these nations and, and what happened there. Maybe it revealed a lack of faith that they had in the way that they responded, okay? Um, and the men of the place asked about his wife and he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say she is my wife because he thought lest the men of the place kill me for Rebecca because she is beautiful to behold. Okay, so again, this is the third time now in the scripture where the same scenario has happened, right? Where either Abraham or Isaac, they go to the place and their, their immediate thought is, I have to lie about who she is because she is so beautiful that they're going to take her from me one way or the other. So if I tell her, if I tell them that she is my wife, then they're just going to kill me and take her. Okay. But if I tell them she is my sister, then maybe they will take her, but I will remain alive. Okay. So one thing we see here is that children often um, repeat the mistakes of the parents. Okay. Um, you know, oftentimes the, the children observing the weaknesses of the parents repeat the same mistakes again. Um, this is something that we learn, something that we inherit. Now, of course, in the scripture, it doesn't say anything about, you know, any conversation between Abraham and Isaac about what happened when he went to Egypt or he went um, to, to, to Abimelech the first time, right? But we can imagine that it was some story that was known. It was something that, you know, that maybe, maybe Isaac was aware of that happened with his father. Um, and so here we see Isaac essentially responding the exact same way that Abraham had done the first time, the first two times, right? That it happened with him, okay? So he is proactively saying, I am planning to lie and saying that she is my sister, okay? Now it came to pass when he had been there for a long time that Abimelech king of the Philistines looked through a window and saw that there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So again, we see that these Philistines actually feared God that they that they they had a moral sense of what was right and wrong that they said that if somebody would have to lane with rebecca not knowing that she was his wife that this would have brought guilt on them that they would have done something wrong that they wanted to live by some kind of code and some standard of living right and and we see how god is rebuking uh, uh isaac through abimelech same exact thing that happened with Abraham, right? God is rebuking him. God is, is telling Isaac, this was wrong, the thing that you did, but he is doing it through the mouth of another person. And this is something that God does with us all the time. You know, God does not appear to us and give us rebuke, but he might rebuke us through other people, through other people that have commented on things that we've done or things that we've said. 
that, that they are reminding us of what is right and wrong. And we should listen. We should listen to when we are rebuked by others because that rebuke is often coming directly from God. Okay. Also, uh, sorry. Um, also, he is like blessing uh, Isaac. Uh, sorry, God, God is the one who blessed Isaac, even though here he sinned. Right. Sometimes we have in our mind the idea that when we commit a sin and when we do something wrong, it's like we're going to lose all blessings. Like God is going to remove his hand from us. He's going to remove his blessings from us and that we're going to be cursed because we have sinned. And oftentimes in the Bible, when we read about certain characters, uh, we read all about all these great things that they've done. We read about their uh, their obedience, their humility, their, you know, all this. But the one wonderful thing about the Bible is it doesn't hide from us the mistakes. Right. So we can relate to these characters and see that even though they were mistakes, even though they were failures, even though they were blemishes, and yet God did not curse these people, but he continued to love them. He forgave them. He continued to work with them and to walk with them. So here's an example where Isaac made a mistake and yet God continues to bless him. Okay. And so God does not remove his blessing from us just because we sin. It says, then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. So similar again to what happened with Abraham is that there were that he began to grow and to prosper and to have so many possessions um, and flocks that the land could not really hold him anymore. And he started to become more powerful even than the Philistines who dwelt in that land, okay? So the Philistines began to envy him. They began to feel like he is growing too powerful um, there in that place. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So if, if, if you remember, um, there were many wells that had been dug, that Abraham had dug, and that while he was dwelling there in the land, he was using them, okay? And uh, there was actually like a conflict that happened between Abraham and Abimelech over one of the wells, okay? Uh, and and that in, on that well, Abraham and Abimelech renewed a covenant. They made a covenant um, uh, at, at that well. So since then, since that has happened, since Abraham had left that region, okay, they had, the, the Philistines had like stopped all of those wells. They'd filled them with dirt, right? They dig them in. And so here they are when Isaac is living in that area saying that all these wells had been filled with dirt. And Abimelech is coming to Isaac and he's saying, you're stronger than us, right? You, we, we, you can't continue to live here anymore. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water, which they had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. Also, Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found, uh, and found a well running water there. So all of these wells that they had stopped up that Abraham, when he was living in the region, had dug, uh, Isaac dug them again, okay? Origen, he speaks about 
um, the wells. Okay, he has a commentary here uh, about the wells. He says, while the Philistine despised the water and loved the land. Okay, so we see this kind of as a symbol. The Philistine despised the water and loved the land. We see Isaac, on the other hand, loving the water, digging again the old wells and new ones as well. Let us contemplate in Isaac, who had given himself for us. He, hidden in the person of Christ, so he's saying that Isaac here represents the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to the valley of Gerar, meaning the wall. Jesus Christ came to break down the wall of division, namely the sin that divides us, divides us from God, that separates us from spiritual virtues to make both one carrying the lost sheep on his shoulders over the mountains to join them to the 99 that were not lost. This Isaac, our savior, has, as he comes to the valley of Gerar, he wishes first to dig again the wells of water that were dug in the time of his father, namely to reveal the wells of the law and the prophets that were stopped up by the Philistines. Who are they? Who fill the wells with dirt? They are actually those who present the law with an earthly carnal way of thinking, getting away from the mysterious spiritual riches. Okay, so he's speaking about how, like, like the Philistines here represent the people that are misusing the law and, and presenting it in the wrong way. Instead of looking at the law in the spiritual way, they're looking at it in a very earthly and carnal way, who present the law with an earthly carnal way of thinking. Okay, they did not drink and hinder others from drinking. Hear what Isaac, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, says in the gospel. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who are entering in, you hinder. So it's like these wells represents like the, the spiritual law, like the spiritual works of God, the spiritual teaching of God. And that Abraham dug these wells, right, representing like his closeness with God and, and his, his, the, the spiritual nature of his, um, of his life, okay? And yet these sinners who are the Philistines, who do not know God, okay, who are pagans, they came and they filled these wells with dirt. It's like they are polluting these wells. They are presenting the wells not in a spiritual way, but according to Origen, they're presenting them in this earthly carnal way, okay? And... And here, Origen is comparing the Philistines to the Pharisees. When Christ was rebuking the Pharisees and the lawyers, he said to them, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who are entering in you hindered. What is it that the Pharisees were doing? The Pharisees took the law, and instead of interpreting it in a spiritual way for the benefit of the people, they interpreted it in a legalistic, literal way that actually became a burden on the people. So, for instance, the Sabbath laws, the ways that the Sabbath was being practiced, according to the Pharisees, like things that, you know, should have been perfectly fine to do, uh, were not allowed to be done on the Sabbath. Every time that Christ healed a sick person on the Sabbath, they, you know, argued against him. And whenever, whenever he would do that, he would have to defend his actions. And he, say, and he said to them, it is not wrong to do good on the Sabbath, right? So the Pharisees took the law of God, but they presented it to the people in a corrupted way that actually hindered the people in their salvation rather than help them, okay? So it's important for us when we understand the law, when we understand the rules of the church, when we understand why is it that we do what we do, 
that we understand it from a spiritual perspective, right? Like the scripture, it says, not by the letter, but by the spirit. This is how we understand the law. We understand it with a spirit of discernment. The law is not there to hinder us. The law is not there to put burdens on us. The law is there to help us, to help to grow us, to help us to reach higher spiritual heights, okay? In the church, for instance, we have, let's say, the rules of fasting, okay? The rules of fasting are not intended to be burdensome. The rules of fasting are intended to be a way to help us to grow spiritually through um, not focusing on our flesh, through denying our flesh, and to focus more on spiritual things. This is why the fasting exists, right? But if a person, for instance, who is not um, accustomed with fasting, maybe they're new to fasting, if you try to impose the fullness of this law on them all at once, maybe this will be too difficult. Maybe they're not going to benefit spiritually from it, okay? And instead, it's going to become something difficult that actually hinders them rather than helping them. This is through the, the judgment of their father of confession to decide, okay, well, we need to make some adjustments to this law, right? So it will be spiritually edifying to you so that you can grow in your spiritual life. And then as you grow and get accustomed to fasting, then we can add more, you know, uh, of the fasting until you eventually can fast the full fast and to fast in a, in, with a, in a beneficial way, okay? So here, these Pharisees, they were adding all of these additional laws, like you had to wash a certain way and you had to do these different things, okay, that were not even scriptural, that were not biblical, they're things that God had not said. And so they were twisting the law of God for their own benefit rather than for helping the people. And so this um, analogy here, Origen is making with them stopping up the wells. So it's like we are polluting the wells. We're polluting the law of God in a way that prevents the people from being able to drink, right? You take this well, which is we're supposed to drink from it, like like when Christ said that he is the fountain of living waters, we are drinking from him, we are receiving from him all the spiritual benefit. But when someone takes dirt and puts it into the well that we are drinking from, we are unable to drink. So in that sense, the Philistines were doing this, okay? They were they were like stopping up this. And this is symbolic, you know, this is a symbol um, of, of, what, uh, of what they were doing. Uh, but the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek because they quarreled with him. Essek means contention. Okay, so there was kind of a conflict there between the Isaac's people and the herdsmen that lived there, the Philistines uh, lived there. And so um, they were fighting over that, that well. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. Sitna means enmity. Okay, so another conflict there. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Uh, Rehoboth means spacious. Okay, so this is another well that they had dug. Then he went from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, 
one of his friends, and Pichol, Pichol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So he said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you, and since we have done nothing to you but good, and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. Okay, so previously with Abraham, Abraham also had made a covenant with Abimelech, okay, at the well, okay, um, and, and so here something very similar is happening, okay. Um, Origen, he sees that Abimelech, who sometimes, who hates Isaac, okay, and at another time he seeks to reconcile with him as a symbol of like this world, like the, the, the philosophy of this world, like in some ways, like the world um, contradicts our faith and in another way or in another time period, it like corresponds with it. Like, like the world is ever changing, right? The world is ever changing. There are times when the world is on our side in the sense that um, the laws are on our side or that the, the, there are situations where and, and eras in, in the world where there have been people who, even though not believers, agreed with the principles of God, you know, agreed with the Christian stance on an issue, right? But there are other times, and, and maybe we see that so much these days, where things are flipped completely upside down, and the world is completely against us, right? And so because of this, you know, and, and I can speak about maybe my own childhood, well, certainly... You know, the United States, I wouldn't call it like really a Christian country necessarily, but I would say that the the values of most people, um, they were much closer to Christian values, even without the faith itself. But but the, the value system, the morality was much closer to Christian values than today. Much, much closer. Right. So someone who is growing up during this time period, OK, is used to the fact that a lot of people in the society, a lot of people around us share our values, okay? And so we become comfortable with the idea that the society, for to a large extent, shares our values, okay? But over time, when the values of society begins to change, we find ourselves in the position where we have kind of gotten comfortable with sharing the same values as society. Like, that's something we're used to. Like, we've just become accustomed to that. And so it starts to be feel uncomfortable and difficult to start to acknowledge that the society, to start to acknowledge that the people that maybe I have been friends with, the, 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 the co-workers I have, the fellow students that I'm with, like the people that I know, it starts to become kind of like a problem because I have to now start acknowledging that these people do not share my values. These people do not believe what I believe. These people are not my friends. Like, Maybe they're nice people and maybe they're not like my enemies, but it doesn't mean that they are really close to me. They cannot be close to me. They, they, they do not share any of the things that are the most important with me, right? And actually, they can be a source of stumbling for me. And a lot of young people, for instance, people in, in, in school, people in college, it's difficult for them to sometimes acknowledge this, right? Because we tend at that age, especially look at things from a superficial perspective and say, well, do we have things in common? But there are things that are much more critical and foundational that we do not have in common. 
And if I open the door for me to make close relationships with people who are so different in their belief system than I am, in their moral system than I am, then I'm setting up myself for temptation. I'm setting up myself for a fall, okay? And so here, what Origen is saying is the world's system might sometimes be close to us and might sometimes be far from us. And so the, the, the standard that we use to determine is... Is, is the God, should be the godly standard. It's not because I've become comfortable being um, kind of at ease with the society around me, right? Um, we, we, we've all heard about a lot of persecution and things that happens in other countries like in Egypt. And for many of us growing up, um, we always said, well, you know, that doesn't happen here. You know, that doesn't happen here. It's happening here. It's happening now here, right? And, and, and maybe it's difficult to get into that mindset right? Because we are so used to thinking of it as there is peace, right? There is not peace now. And there is, there is not peace. There is a lot of attacks against the church and against our faith and our way of life, right? And so if we're not cognizant of that, if we're not aware of that, then we might find ourselves um, being deceived and falling into a trap. We should always be awake, alert, have our eyes open. What is it that's happening around me? What does it mean for me? Who is it that I'm considering to me my close relationships and how, what kind of influence are they having on me, right? Um, it's important for us to keep that in mind, okay? Um, <clears throat> another thing that Origen says is if philosophy is not contradicting God's law all the way, it could not always be in accordance with it. Meaning what? Even if Philosophy, he uses the word philosophy to kind of mean like the way of the world, like the philosophy of the world. If the philosophy of the world is not 100% contradicting of God's law, which I would say it's, it's not 100% contradicting of God's law, but he's saying, but it also is not in accordance with it, right? So he's saying, don't be fooled. Just because, you know, a societal system is not 100% against God doesn't mean that it's with God, right? So don't be deceived because you know, there's one positive thing or a few positive things about the moral system of a society and then assume that because that's the case and because that's in common with us, that means that we're the same. He's saying, no, you know, just be very careful. We need to be very, very discerning. We need to teach our children to be very discerning because we are in an age now where the, the, the non-discerning is a fool and that fool will, will fall. And, 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 if, and if we don't teach our children this from a young age as they are growing up, we're going to find that they're suddenly older and they're suddenly like living in a society that they are deceived to believe is in line with them, is supporting them, is like them, and that they want to be a part of that place, that one, they want to be a part of that society. And, 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 and we'll have a very difficult time explaining why the belief system of the world is not, is, is, is not with us, right? It's not, again, it's not with God's law. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another. And Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well, which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of that city is Beersheba to this day. So beer means well and Sheba Okay, is in, in Hebrew, it means seven. Okay, and the number seven represents an oath, represents a promise. Okay, in Hebrew. 
So Beersheba means like the well of oath or the well of promise, okay? Because they made a covenant there um, at this well that they are going to be at peace with one another. When Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Bethamath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they were a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebekah. Esau married pagan women. Again, another kind of example where we see how he did not care about the things of God, right? We saw before that he didn't care about his birthright. It was, it was something despised in his eyes, didn't care about it. And here we see he doesn't even care whether he marries um, the, the, the pagan women or not. Again, his, the faith of his people, the covenant of his God is not something important to him. And, 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 and we will we'll continue to see that pattern um, play out in his life. Okay, um, so that's the end of chapter 26. Uh, so God willing, next time we'll continue uh, in starting from chapter 27. Let's just conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We ask you, O Lord, to grant us your peace, to fill us, O Lord, with a spiritual desire, as we see, O Lord, in Jacob, who seeks after the spiritual things, and not Esau, who seeks after the earthly things. We ask, O God, that you keep us to be faithful to your church and to your law, and that we walk in with you, O Lord, and we see, O Lord, your grace working in our lives all the time, and that we are comforted by your presence, not comforted by the things in the world, for the world is full of disorder and chaos. But we ask, O God, that you grant us your peace in the midst of this chaos, and that you walk with us, O Lord, and that we feel comforted by you and only you. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, Hear us as we pray, thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Have a good night, everybody.